Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, June 17th. And today, Julia Alexander, Director of Strategy at Parrot Analytics and a Puck contributor, stops by to talk about how Disney, Netflix, and Warner Brothers Discovery are responding to some recent setbacks and a not-so-friendly economy. And later on, Alex Bigler is here talking to Bill Cohan for another round of Feedback Friday. Stick around for some fun facts about Bill and how he got back into journalism after a little detour on Wall Street. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Friday, everybody. Uh, we have a Friday treat for you. Julia Alexander, who is the Director of Strategy at Parrot Analytics and a Puck contributor, is joining us to talk about the strategy at Disney, Netflix, Warner Brothers, all of the above. How you doing, Julia? Good, good. How are you? I'm good. Hey, I want to ask you about something that happened this week. Disney put in a bid for the Indian Premier League, which basically is cricket. Huge deal. And they lost out. And I was just like looking at some clips about this. And because Disney lost this bid, they might lose millions and millions of subscribers. Is that right? Yeah, this is like a beautiful game of upside downside for Disney. So the downside is that, yes, the IPL is extremely important to Disney Plus's continued growth in India. Downside India and Disney Plus Hotstar represents a really, really low average revenue per user, which we refer to as ARPU in the industry for Disney Plus. So it actually kind of weighs down their average revenue per user because they make very little money off of it. Mm-hmm. That being said, on the upside, Disney Plus Hotstar currently makes up about half of Disney Plus's entire subscriber base. So they're going to see a bunch of subscriber churn when the IPL rights are no longer with them. That means that although they're going to lose all those subscribers, the average revenue per user across all of its Disney Plus platforms is going to increase. So the question is, what does this mean for Disney Plus and Disney Plus in India? My assumption is actually not much. And this was a move that I was hoping that they would do. I was hoping that they would not go above a certain number when they were bidding. And I was hoping that they would lose or if they were, because they now have the ability to recast their projections. 
So two years ago, Bob Chapek, current CEO, stepped out and said, we're trying to get to 230 to 260 million Disney Plus subscribers by fiscal year 2024. At this current point, that would mean an average of 10 million subscribers added per quarter over the next 10 quarters. Now, that's not something that Disney potentially is going to miss out on. One thing you learn in this industry very, very quickly is that most companies do not put out public figures unless they're pretty sure they can hit those public figures, especially a company like Disney. But that said, it's still a pretty lofty goal. So if they're saying we're going to lose a bunch of subscribers in India, but it's going to increase our overall ARPU, we're really excited about that. They get the chance right now in the middle of a bear market during really uncertain times to tell the street, actually, we're going to lower our projection. We're going to aim for 190 to 200 million subscribers in that same time. And actually, our revenue is going to increase because we're bringing in advertising to Disney+. Plus. We're focusing on other regions. We still think our content will help Disney Plus grow in India. So the IPL debate is actually a really fun conversation about when it's a good point to cut your losses. And I don't want to be like, oh, IPL is a, a giant loss, but Disney can now take this moment to realign themselves with some different goals that work better for them. So I think it's a win, even though they've totally lost out on, on those rights. Yeah, I was listening to a um, podcast today about Wall Street stuff, and they were sort of hinting that other, like lots of big companies might be revising their quarterly estimates and what's that's going to do the market. But like, the way you put it makes a lot of sense for Disney. This could be just projected as a win for them without losing a ton of money. Exactly. And this was something that I know I have, I know other analysts have had every single quarter, this question of, are you going to readjust your projections? Now, Disney is still launching in a lot of key markets. So Disney is going to see automatic growth because they're launching in those markets. But again, like 10 million subscribers per quarter is a huge ask. And Disney has surpassed that in quarters. They've hit, they've added 11.7 million. They've added 12 million subscribers. Disney has not hit that. They've added 4 million subscribers, 5 million. On average, 10 million would be doing incredible business over the next two years. And that's just not something I necessarily see happening for Disney, especially as we enter this really interesting moment where in the U.S., you know, inflation is getting really high. And while normally, you know, precedent says that that's actually really good for home video entertainment because more people are staying home, they're not going out as much. But that was before there was this level of competition amongst Netflix, HBO Max, Disney Plus. So the idea of households potentially relying on two to three to four streaming services might come down to one or two. Mm -hmm. And although I'm sure Disney will be fine there, if for some reason a household is like, I don't really want Disney Plus, I want HBO Max and whatever else it might be, they may see some additional churn on that end. So I think having this moment for Disney to really say, we understand that the market is changing. We understand that the economics of our world are changing right now, if not for the better. And we understand that without the IPL rights, we're going to take a loss in the subscribers in India. Actually, this is good for us because we can increase our ARPU and we can figure out what we want to do next and where we want to invest into our content slate. So I think for Disney, although everything is framed as like they lost out, although it, it kind of reads as a negative in all the headlines, I would say this is an astutely positive thing for Disney. Speaking of course corrections, Netflix... Creators, actors, directors like love to work with them, big names at least, because they like pay a lot of money. Their market cap is down. The market generally is down. Are they going to keep paying people as much moving forward to make shows and movies? So Netflix, what they would do for people who maybe are not aware is instead of doing back end payments. So if we think about a theatrical movie, for example, artists will or actors, directors will take a fee up front and then kind of like in the publishing industry, right? They're in there, they make a percentage of the box office total return. So if the movie makes a billion dollars to the box office, you're Zendaya and Tom Holland and Spider-Man, you're gonna have a pretty nice pay cut or paycheck, I should say. 
when that movie comes out and everything is said and done. Netflix, because they didn't really have advertising, there was no theatrical release. Netflix said to a bunch of showrunners and directors, we're going to give you an upfront fee. So we're going to treat every single movie and television show like it is a massive hit, even if we don't know if it's going to be a hit or not. So something where a director or a showrunner might take a million dollars, Netflix goes, we're going to give you $4 million, but you don't get any back-end deal. And a lot of creators flocked to this because they wanted the upfront cash. It was a great way to kind of, and especially because Netflix wasn't really doing exclusivity deals, they could give Shonda Rhimes or, or, or Ryan Murphy, you know, all this money. And Ryan Murphy still had a bunch of shows over at FX. For creators, it was a great time to really be in that system. That was when Netflix was growing incrementally and then exponentially every quarter. It was when the street was still valuing Netflix along the same lines as they valued Google and Apple and Amazon. It was when Netflix had this influx of cash that they could continue to do this and spend you know $20 billion on content. And no one really questioned it. It was kind of like, well, the company's doing fine. Now, as Netflix is, is reigning in costs, are the upfront deals more lucrative for Netflix in the long run? And the answer is probably not necessarily and definitely not across the board. But the other aspect to bring up with this conversation is that because Netflix never had to give out back-end deals, Netflix never had to be transparent about the back-end performance. Netflix Mm -hmm. never had to give showrunners or directors, well, here's how your film did or your show did. So they could say, here's your $4 million. We'll tell you if it did okay. We're not going to give you exact numbers. And then we're keeping those numbers. So I think we're in this really beautiful transitional moment with Netflix where Netflix, which was, you know, the future company of tomorrow is now having to learn how to be kind of like the legacy companies of yesteryear. And they're saying, well, we're going to bring in advertising. We don't want to necessarily do all these overall deals. And I think as a result of that, as these contracts start to change and as we start to see advertisers ask for more information, we'll actually see more transparency from Netflix on the performance because they're just going to have to do it on the performance of those films and TV series. And I think part of them deciding to do the big upfront overall deal with creators was one, to retain, I mean, it it seemed more lucrative for them when they were first starting to do it, but two, it was to retain that sense of control, especially with their numbers, which they protect, you know, and their algorithm, which they protect wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. So I do think to answer your question in a long, rambly way, (laughs) I think it is changing. Now there are always going to be some creators that can just, demand it. You know, J.J. Abrams can demand stuff from Apple and Apple who has more money than God three times over will say like, sure, we want J.J. Abrams. We want Bad Robot. There are other creators like Greg Berlanti who does the like the Arrow universe on the CW. Very important to Warner Brothers television. He can kind of demand a package and that makes a lot of sense for them. But for the vast majority, the other 98% of creators, we're going to see a lot of those overall deals start to go away. And the more traditional deals that we're relying on the back end and, and box office numbers start to come back to the forefront. All right, last thing, really quick. Warner Brothers Discovery CEO, David Zaslov. Zaz, for Puck readers, uh, you would know him as. He's obviously promised a lot of, quote unquote, synergies. He's looking to cut costs as he takes the helm there. Where do you see him making some nips and tucks? So he's actually on pace, I would say, to hit those kind of synergistic cuts. You know, he's talking about, there was a story, I believe, in the information, and then in the Hollywood Reporter that was looking at him consolidating the sales distribution team for a lot of the theatrical stuff, all the television stuff. He's got teams that can do that. I think we're going to see, I mean, we will see eventually HBO Max and Discovery Plus merge. So that gets rid of a lot of duplicating jobs. It gets rid of a platform that they no longer need to keep operating. We're already seeing it in terms of cuts at the company where there have been layoffs, especially 
high, high oustings at the executive level. I mean, those are decent paychecks. And of course, the shuttering of CNN Plus, right? Like he came in and mm-hmm. he shut that down right off the bat. I do think where Zaz is going to come in and say, like, here's where we can really cut costs is in the valuation of content. The valuation of content is a really important discussion. And it's been really hard to do in this industry because there's no one tool that really says, like, here's how you value a title. And here's how you value that title based on extremely important genomic inputs, including like, what is the franchise opportunity in this? What is the longevity of this investment? How well is this going to travel? If I'm making a show that's based in South Korea, it's something like Squid Game, is this going to travel to the rest of the world? What does that mean for my multiples on growth for subscribers? All of those really important questions that people with very, very fancy MBAs from Stanford get a lot of money to kind of figure out how to figure that out. We don't really have an answer to. And I think that's where Zaz, who's very data focused, is going to come in and kind of say, like, where can we cut costs on the content side without cutting quality on the content side? And it's easy for him to do. He came from cable. His lifestyle content is extremely, really good, strong return on investment. Versus if you look at HBO and you look at the Warner Media kind of team in general, there's a lot of hits. They have a really solid hit rate. But I mean, there's a lot of spending without guarantee. And that's what happens in television and film regardless. Like there is no data science to really say this is absolutely going to be a hit or this is not. There's always Mm -hmm. a chance. But I do think where Zaz comes in and says, here's where we're going to consolidate is the investment, overall investment in content and is the type of content that they're investing in. So I think my prediction would be that we're going to hear a lot more about internal clashing between the creative heads and the kind of data supported minds that Zaz surrounds himself with until they figure out how to bring costs down. But I mean, bringing costs down in entertainment is tough because entertainment is costly, but it will be, it'll be interesting. That's where I see it happening though. It will be, it'll be across content. A mind meld between data people and creative content types. What could go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right, Julia, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back, everybody. This is not Peter Hamby, as you can probably tell from my voice, but this is Alex Bigler. And I am 
excited to welcome you to today's issue of Feedback Friday. We are trying something a little bit new and different with Feedback Friday. Here, what we're trying to do is uh, really bring in our other journalists to come and speak with yours truly. I get to ask them questions that maybe their editors aren't asking them about things that they're seeing or doing or aspects of their life that I think are super interesting, as well as read questions from recent pieces that have come through from our readers. So today, I am so thrilled to say that I am speaking with William D. Cohan. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Alex. It's been a dream of mine for a very long time to be on your podcast, so thank you for having me. Well, you had to start somewhere. At the top. Finally, you've become a name. You've become a name, and you can now join my segment. I love your private email, Dry Powder. I used to work in finance. I used to read your work all the time. And I think what makes you so special is you have a history of working in finance. And so I'm curious, at what point in that finance career did you think to yourself, I think I can write about this. I think there's some good material here, and I think I'm the person who can do it well. It's a interesting question, Alex, because actually the opposite is is more to the point, which is that I was a journalist before I went to Wall Street. And after going to Columbia Journalism School and then being a reporter at the Daily Paper in Raleigh, North Carolina, I decided to go back to business school because I really wanted to get a job at the Wall Street Journal. And I just thought when it was owned by the Bancroft family, it was the greatest paper. And, you know, there'd be these deals that would happen and you'd wait a couple of days and there'd be this huge takeout uh, in the paper, giving you all those luscious details about how the deal came together and everything like that. So I just decided I wanted to write those uh, stories just like that. So I kept trying to get a job there and they kept saying no and ignoring me. I figured if I got an MBA and then tried again, they would have no choice but to take me. But I was wrong about that. I did get my MBA, but they did keep ignoring me. And so then finally in uh, 87, May of 87, after I got out of business school, I decided uh, to go. It was either the Wall Street Journal or Wall Street and Wall Street Journal wouldn't have me. So I went to Wall Street and, and all you had to do back then to get a job on Wall Street was fog a mirror. And so I went off to Wall Street thinking I was done with journalism and now I was becoming a capitalist. So it wasn't that I decided that what I'm witnessing here is so interesting. I want to write about it. I actually thought that's it. You know, what's going on here is kind of brutal and I'm just going to have to endure it and I'm not going to write about it because I'm not a journalist anymore. I'm now a banker. So of course I'm not going to write about it. But that all changed in 2004 when after 9-11 and the fallout from 9-11, I was working at J.P. Morgan Chase and you know the merger wasn't going well and they decided they needed to fire a bunch of people, and they eventually fired me. And so I decided, well, now what can I do? And I realized that the thing that I could do best would be going back to being a journalist. So I thought, well, what can I write about? And I decided that Lazard was such an interesting place where I had worked, and there hadn't been a book about it 
uh, in about 25 years. And that book was really about Andre Maier, but there hadn't been a book about, you know, rolling it forward through people like Michelle David Vey and Felix Rowiton and Bruce Wasserstein and others. And so I wrote a, uh, on a sort of like on a whim, I wrote a proposal and it, publishing houses went crazy for it. And the rest is history. They signed me up and I wrote that book and it was a bestseller and it won the uh, FT Goldman Sachs Business Book of the Year Award. So at that point, you know, I was like, whoa, maybe I am a writer. Well, J.P. Morgan Chase's loss is the world's gain. So exactly the way I look at it, too. We had a couple of reader questions come in that I thought were were pretty good. And I wanted to to read them to you and get your perspective. So the first question says, I know you think the Fed stayed way behind the curve through 21. How would you rank the following in the Hall of Fame, or should I say Hall of Shame, of financial market distortions they created? And this person lays out SPACs, retail investors pumping up doomed companies just for kicks, the whole crypto NFT ecosystem, and the good old-fashioned treasury bond market as a whole. Which one would you put in the Hall of Fame? Well, I think, in truth, they're all symptoms of what the Fed was doing generally, which was buying trillions of dollars of debt and debt securities and pumping up the price of debt and debt securities and therefore lowering the yields and creating what I call the yield hunger games where investors all over the world, because this was a policy that then was adopted by central banks all over the world, were desperate for yield because interest rates were at historic lows. I mean, like historic all-time lows. And it was like that for 13 years. Only now we're beginning to see that change. And so investors were desperate for yield, buying up anything that looked like a high yield, further driving up their uh, prices and lowering their yields further. And so you just had this plunge into high-risk assets in hope of uh, getting a return that would exceed what you get by buying something safe like treasury bonds. So the Fed is responsible for all that, knowingly, uh, you know, they had mens rea. They did it intentionally. A little of that went a, a long way. They kept it going for too long. And so you just had this, you know, massive bubbles left and right, whether it was in crypto, meme stocks, uh, uh, SPACs. Do any of them get your goat more than another? They all get my goat. Any kind of financial manipulation just really pisses me off. And the Fed was manipulating interest rates for 13 years. I mean, deliberately manipulating the price of money. And that is uh, not healthy. And, you know, it made the rich richer. Anybody who uh, made money from money got fabulously even richer than they already were. And, you know, people on fixed incomes uh, suffered. And, you know, the common man who decided to, you know, play, see if they could play alongside the big boys also got singed. So I'm not a big fan of uh, the Fed manipulating the price of money. So what is the lesson of all of this? Does it turn out the old way of companies going public was totally fine? Did we learn anything at all from this, anything useful from this process? Well, the old way companies went public is not totally fine. That's another discussion. It's for next Feedback Friday. Yeah, 
There are a lot of flaws in that, but compared to SPACs, I mean, it's a dream and it's not a dream. So that just tells you how bad SPACs are. What did we learn? I mean, if it seems too good to be true, it it, it is. I mean, uh, you know, whether it's crypto or NFTs or SPACs or meme stocks or you name it. But this is part of human nature. People like to take these kinds of flights of fancy. They just do. So you can talk about it all you want, how they should avoid it, but this is part of human nature. People like doing this. They like get-rich-quick schemes. They like to think that this time is different. They like to think that somehow calamity and losing their money, they will avoid. Uh, That won't touch them, but it's just not the case. Well, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. If you have um, any questions for Bill or anything you'd like to see on a future Feedback Friday segment, please feel free to email fritz at puck.news and we'll answer them on the show. Thanks so much, everybody. Take care. Thank you for having me, Alex. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 